I had to start forgiving myself before I could even go to anything else. And it happened when I went to prison. Welcome to The One You Feed. Throughout time, great thinkers have recognized the importance of the thoughts we have. Quotes like, garbage in, garbage out, or you are what you think, ring true. And yet, for many of us, our thoughts don't strengthen or empower us. We tend toward negativity, self-pity, jealousy, or fear. We see what we don't have instead of what we do. We think things that hold us back and dampen our spirit. But it's not just about thinking. Our actions matter. It takes conscious, consistent, and creative effort to make a life worth living. This podcast is about how other people keep themselves moving in the right direction, how they feed their good wolf. First Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us. Our guest on this episode is Donna Hilton, a women's rights activist and criminal justice reform advocate. Donna is a sought-after speaker who speaks publicly about the trauma of sexual violence and abuse. She emphasizes how the root causes often result in victimization and that 90% of women who have been abused are being incarcerated, especially women of color. Her book is A Little Piece of Light, a memoir of hope, prison, and a life abound. Hi, Donna. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. It is a real honor to have you on. You have an incredible story and an incredible journey and a wonderful book called A Little Piece of Light, A Memoir of Hope, Prison, and a Life Unbound. And we're going to get into all of that in a moment, but let's start like we always do with the parable. There is a grandmother who's talking with her granddaughter, and she says, in life, there are two wolves inside of us that are always at battle. One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness, and bravery, and love. And the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. And the granddaughter stops and thinks about it for a second and looks up at her grandmother and says, well, grandmother, which one wins? And the grandmother says, the one you feed. So I'd like to start off by asking you what that parable means to you in your life and in the work that you do? So that parable actually resonates with me a lot. And I say that because I, looking at my entire life, my childhood, you know, all the things that I went through, the abuse, the trauma, the uh, violence, 
I could have become a product of all those things at any time. And I didn't because I knew there was something more that that wasn't me, wasn't who I should be. And I didn't, I don't know what was keeping me so, I would say grounded or Mm -hmm. knowing for a little girl, but I kind of knew, but I just didn't know how to navigate. I didn't know how to articulate it. I just didn't know what to do because I was a child. Um, But I continue to hold on to the light, which is the good wolf, right? Mm -hmm. Because I knew that that other stuff that was happening around me wasn't me, but I just didn't know how to get out of it. Yeah. And it's just something that I knew. It's just innate, I think, you know? I try to, like, figure that out, and I just knew. I really did. And because it felt right. It felt right. As a, as a little girl, it just felt right to know, like, knowing the things that were going on around me were bad. But I just didn't know how bad and really know what to do with it. Yeah, it's a great perspective. And I love, you know, sort of equating the good wolf with that little piece of light, which is a theme that runs through your book, that despite all the darkness, you you held on to these little p- points of light. So maybe let's start with just having you walk us through some of the darkness that got you to where you ended up. I don't want to say too much. It would be nice if people get the book. <laughs> but <laughs> I was born on the island of Jamaica. And I was born to a mother that, looking back now in my adulthood and understanding, I know she had some mental illness. My diagnosis right now, I would say she was um, bipolar, manic depressive. I could be wrong, but I think I'm kind of close to being on point, especially understanding human behavior and human condition. Um, And so she was, but she was my mother. She was abusive, but then she'd be loving and then she'd be abusive right after she's loving. It was really difficult for me as a child to, you know, understand what was wrong with my mother and, and understand why she wasn't around as much. And when she was around, why would she always, you know, go from one way to another way, good to bad, be loving and then not loving, be really cruel. Um, but she was my mother and I still loved her. And so by the time I was around um, six, six and a half, six, a couple was introduced to me and I eventually was brought to America when I found out later, much later, actually when I was writing the book and putting the pieces together, that I was sold. And I was brought up to America with the couple. And I was told that they were now my mother and my father. And that was hard for me to really understand because I knew my mother. I knew other people in my family in Jamaica. Um, I was seven and a half when I got here. And so by the time I was nine and a half, so it's about two years, the man who was now my father started taking me to a closet and raping me almost every day. And I was like nine and a half. So I went from one series of um, or horrific conditions to another. I actually would have preferred being home with my mother because <laughs> she was my mother and I knew her, you know, and she gave birth to me. So, I mean, I grew up in a country that I know, I remember it well. And being here in this country and not, and always asking for my mother, when will I see her again? 
you know, it's just on top of the abuse, the trauma, the rapes and the molestations and stuff, you know, it was just really difficult, really difficult. It was very traumatic. You know, and your your adoptive mother was not um, a stroll in the park either. She wasn't. <laughs> you know, when I came here, she was a psychiatric social worker, but she was working towards her other degrees. So at some point, and I'm not sure when, she was in a dual or some kind of master's program where she got her master's and PhD and all these things. And she went on to becoming one of New York State's mental health directors. And she used to take me with her to some of her places where she had her um, patients. They called them patients then. And um, I knew that they were different. I knew, I understood, I understood clearly that they were mentally challenged or, or some things were wrong. They didn't really get it, but I understood something were different. Um, but I watched how she treated them and she treated them very nicely, caringly. And all I wanted her to do was just give me a key so I could lock my bedroom door so I wouldn't be hurt anymore, you know? Um, and I didn't understand how she didn't, didn't understand why she couldn't help me but then I also was told that, or I believed everything that was happening was my fault. As a child, you believe everything bad that happens is your fault. And so you start owning other people's stuff. You don't know how to, you know, rationalize and, 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 and analyze what's going on around you. It was just very painful. One of the themes of the book to me is all the different systems that failed you. And one of the early ones was you finally got up the courage to tell a school counselor what your adoptive father was doing to you. I was about 12, 12 and a half. And um, I was on the track team by then. I was the captain of the track team. And so I was finding a sense of freedom in running track. I think that's probably why I became good at it because I was running away right in in my mind as I ran but one day I just I was tired I just tired I just was so tired and so I I went to tell the counselor that I needed some help and I tried to tell her I told her basically my father was hurting me and I couldn't take it anymore and she asked me does my mother know and I said no as a child I said no I looking back though I knew now I now know she knew but so she said she would call her. That's okay. All I really wanted out of that to happen was for her to give me a key. So she would give me a key for my bedroom door. And so that was my childish way of saying that would be my help. But that didn't happen. I, I don't really know the conversation on the phone, but I just know that the counselor passed me the phone, said your mother wants to speak with you. Next thing I know, she was yelling at me and called me a liar and threatened me. There was a show that I used to watch that scared me half to death as a kid. And um, she told me that I would become just like the people that I would see the women that were on that show. And I would be locked up and I would never be able to come out. I wouldn't be home. I mean, all kinds of things. And it just shut me down. But she told, basically told them that I was lying told the counselor I was lying. And so I shut up from there. And so then not too long after that, you are in a position where uh, there is an older male that comes into your life who pretends to want to help you. Mm -hmm. it, the story is just, it's just reading. It is just I, 
I know people tell me, like, people say, I see comments like, oh, that couldn't possibly have happened. Everybody couldn't have done that to her. Yes, it does happen. I'm not the only story. Oh, you're, you're not. Just don't talk Unf- about unfortunately, it. you're not. No, I'm not. I'm just speaking about it and bringing it, to, making you uncomfortable with it by bringing it to the surface. Because yeah. we have to talk about it. Yep. We have to do that so we can stop this and get to the root causes and stuff. But you're right. So I, an older person did come into my life. Why? Because I found out, well, looking, understanding it now, my father was involved with immigrant. I don't even know what you call that. Getting people to get citizenships by marrying them to people that were American citizens. Well, he was doing that. And so there was one older gentleman who's definitely older than me. I was 14 by, at that time. He was like 23, 24. And he just started talking to me, asking me, how are you? You know, just being nice. And I would talk to him. And one day he said, you know, you can talk to me. You can tell me anything that you want. I care. You know, I care about you, basically. And so this is two years later. And he felt he sounded sincere to me. You know, so I said, "Okay," I would tell him. And I started telling him what was going on. I think over a course of like two days or so, two, three days, I didn't tell him all at one time. And by the end of the conversation, uh, he told me that he would help me. He would take me away, get me away from there. No one would hurt me again. He would make sure that I was okay. That's all I wanted to hear. That's all I needed. You know, I couldn't get the key. I still hadn't gotten a key to the house to get inside, get out or in or to my bedroom. So I was like, okay. Maybe this will work. You know, I just needed help. And he was an adult. So I figured, okay, I would get help. Became my worst nightmare. And it just, you know, one thing I like to tell people is that uh, people, especially girls who are facing or or dealing with trauma, trauma such as that, in that capacity, um, it does something different to us, our psyche. We're already made to believe that we are second before men, before boys, right? And so we're less valued. You kind of know that in your own way as a kid. You kind of know that. And so, and people, the adults reinforce that around you, right? And especially for me. And so I believe he's a man. I believe he would help. You know, that kind of thing. But I also had an older man that was abusing me already, raping me. You know what I mean? So it kind of made sense that, well, a man can help me in this situation. Two weeks after, um, um, I ran away with him because he talked me into running away. He started abusing me and raping me even worse than I could imagine. Yeah. And became the father of your child. So, I mean, I say clearly that Adrian is a product of rape. I was 15 years old. I didn't want to have sex with them. I didn't, that's not what I ran away for. I ran away to get, be safe, to be protected. But that's not what that turned into. And yeah, I got pregnant with Adrian. And she's a product of that. But I love her. <laughs> you know, um, I know what it's like not to be loved and to be hurt. So I could never do that to her or any other human being. Um, but it's difficult sometimes. It's difficult. How is she? Are you comfortable talking about that? I'm, I'm okay. I wrote it in a book too. Adrian, you know, 
was hurt herself. Family member hurt her. Um, she ran away, same age as I did, and ran to me in prison. And I helped her as much as I could. I eventually signed her into the army. That's what she wanted to do. Um, but she was still kind of messed up. Why? Because her mother wasn't there. And it does have an effect on your children. When the mother isn't there, our family, you know, isn't there. Definitely the mother. And she carries that to this day. So our relationship is a work in progress. She started um, doing drugs, heroin, and really badly. And I've been trying to deal with that, doing the best that I can with that. She's an adult now, so there's not much that I can do. She says she's off. I would like to believe her, you know. Yeah. Um, I would like to believe her. I'm here, but I have to keep a healthy distance also because Adrian likes to continue to throw in my face that I wasn't there and blame me not, be, not being there when she was younger for the things that happened to her. And after a while, you got to have to like grow up and, you know, and I've tried to do everything that I can, but I'm still there as best as I can. I'll always be there for her, always love her, but it's a work in progress. Well, I sincerely uh, hope and wish for the best for her. But We Loved is a new podcast about queer history coming May 15th. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, your host. Growing up, I thought being gay was the worst thing I could ever be. The gay history I learned was tragic. Jerry had died of AIDS, and it's like, what is happening? It was survival. That's why it's called survival sex. But as I interviewed queer elders, I realized there was another history that I had never been taught— a history of courage and perseverance. I wanted to take control of my story and not be ashamed of it. And it was a history full of love. The joy we found in saying husband again and again and again was incredible. And while learning this new queer history from my elders, I realized they had so much wisdom to pass down. The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself. For My Heart Podcasts, I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and this is But We Loved. Listen to But We Loved May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
So without belaboring too much of it, I, I want to get on with, with parts of the story, but the abuse doesn't stop there. By the time that you, um, you know, you, you referenced it, prison, we'll talk about that in a minute. By the time you've gone into prison, you have been abused and raped by your math teacher, a police officer, a clergyman. I mean, you have been damaged over and over again. You know, I get these questions like, how can you talk about it and just talk about it? And I said, it comes with practice. (laughs) It comes with practice. It comes with many, many years of um, therapy, healing. But it also comes from that place of light. So it comes from that good wolf that I feed. Because I know that to talk about it, I release it as well, instead of holding on. And as much as you talk about and you think you release all the pain and the stuff that you go through, they're echoes, right? And so your body and your mind and your, you have echoes of trauma. You have echoes of things that happen to you. And so, you know, I tell people that I talk about it because I know I need to tell people what happens and what we do to people so we can face it and understand it and try to stop it. Mind you, everything that happened in the book up until I went to prison happened to me by the time I was 19, 20. It's not like I lived and this was like my life. This is something that is my childhood. You know, the one with the police officer, an older man was trying to make me be his girl, girlfriend or something like that. And I just kept my distance. And this, he found where I was staying in the Bronx and was waiting outside in the night. And I just happened to go outside with a friend to go to the store and he was waiting. He knew where I was and he was waiting. And he snatched me up by gunpoint, took me into a a cab, took me to his home and he raped me, kept me there for three days. And a friend, a, a neighbor, a family neighborhood friend who just happened to be a person of the church or a local pastor invited him. Oh, I don't know how that happened. I just know he was there. I knew who he was and he raped me as well. So those things do happen. It was from that incident where I was able to get away after three days and I went back and she t- I told her what happened and she told me she knew he had snatched me because she was there when he took me by gunpoint. And she said, you need to go to the police and say something. I was afraid to, but I did it. You know, I did it. I went, had burns on my body because he had burnt me. It beat me really bad. The detective who took the case took me to uh, Jacoby Hospital's, a burn unit there. I was treated and he was taking me back. He pulled me over on the street, a dark street court, uh, street in the Bronx. And he raped me. So it does happen. And yes, so, you know, I was saying, referencing before that, you know, when you're young, you, 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 and especially for young girls, you really start owning and really believing that everything that happens around you is your fault. And so you continue to make those series of same mistakes because you don't know how to navigate. You don't know how to rationalize what's going on. And there's no positive or the good wolves around you just like, hey, I need help. And they really help you. Predators know prey. And when predators recognize prey, they victimize, they hurt, they do these things. And there are, I mean, there are a lot of broken people in this world. 
there are a lot of broken people in this world. And I said, there's a lot of walking wounded people. And I've turned my life into becoming a wounded healer as opposed to hurting people. So you go to prison. Um, May we spend a minute or two on what brought you there, although I think that's less important to the overall story, but maybe, you know, walk us through that. And then, you know, then I'd like to talk about your time in prison, because that's really when things started to really change for you. Being young and and not going back to the Hiltons after I ran away and I got away from Adrian's father, I was trying to figure out life and try to figure out what I was going to do as a young mother. I was a child with a child. So I would get odd jobs. And trying to become a model, because I thought if I was a model, that that would help me. I don't know why. It was my childish dream. I was like, oh, they can be, they're pretty and no one hurts them. I really believe that. But people always talk about how pretty I am. So I equated that with like, they're pretty, no one hurts them. I want to do that. I want to be like them. Anyway, it was me working and trying to do that, build a modern modeling career at 16, 17, 18, 19. I started working at this hotel gift shop and I met my soon-to-be co-defendant and I was gullible and just nice and I just everybody I wanted to be my friend I'm the walking wounded I needed family I needed friendship I needed I'm all very needy because I was so broken and she just seemed very nice and not like everybody else she was that you know people shy away from people because they don't look like everyone else and she looks frumpy and you know whatever and I was like well she's my friend you know like I was going to protect her like I couldn't protect me and I felt I was becoming her friend and it was after a series of conversations of me telling her everything I just told her everything that you do that and telling her what I wanted to do be a model and about my daughter and I just you know I don't know what to do I have her staying with the people that hurt me right? My, my mother, my father, but I don't know. I don't have a place. I was 18, 19. And, um, so she told me one day that, Oh, I can get my godfather to help you. He knows people. He knows everyone. And she started talking about being, um, in the mafia and I said, okay, I didn't pay. Okay. It didn't matter. I was like, I heard help. No problem. Fine. That didn't go well. <laughs> turned out into, um, he said, basically, I'm going to kind of speed it up so we won't spend so much time on it, but it's important. It's very important because of Mr. V. Um, that he would help me. Oh, he just wants me to um, do something for him. I was like, sure. So the bottom line was, would I, you know, say I witnessed a sexual encounter between his business partner and Maria? became my co-defendant. They both became my co-defendant. And so I said, okay, that's where I went wrong. I should never have said, okay, because there's nothing okay with that. But I didn't see it that way because sex at this time, that kind of stuff didn't, it didn't matter to me because people were, that's what they were doing to me. So there was no judgment call. There was no rationale for me there. The day came for for me to do that, be, you know, walking on a sexual, you know, intimate scene with um, Mr. V, who I didn't know, but I know later on was Mr. V and Maria. And I walked into a kidnapping. A kidnapping was already in place and I couldn't walk out of it. And because of that, 
I became a co-defendant and and, uh, an accessory. That was not my crime or anything that I put together, but you would not know that based on media, you know, and only what other people have to say. Um, But it was actually known in the court that, you know, I and a couple of other girls were accessories to this thing. We didn't have any clue. We didn't even know who Mr. V was. We had no, we weren't into these things. We were young and I was the youngest. So I received 25 to life and I went to Bedford for the crimes of kidnapping and murder because that's what the convictions were for. I didn't kidnap Mr. V and I didn't murder Mr. V. Actually, Mr. V wasn't murdered in the sense where we see someone killing someone, um, but he was murdered because it was in an act of a felony where he had, he was kidnapped. And so he had a gag over his eyes and his mouth and he suffocated because I think he was trying to move it or no one suffocated him. And they said that the autopsy shows that. So it was like a slow kind of progression, um, which is horrible. And how could a person die? You know, and I'm around, like, how could I not do anything? Like, how could this happen? But I, I blame myself for a very long time, a very long time. And so that's where I had to start with the healing. I had to start forgiving myself before I could even go to anything else. And it happened when I went to prison. You say in the book, the people that involved you in this crime, you know, had threatened your family if you did not help and participate. And I didn't want anybody dead. I didn't, I didn't like, what does that mean? And they were saying they were mafia related and they, I believed them. Yep. Adults, they doing all these things around me. I don't know what that means. I don't know. Um, but I couldn't, that's why I said, when I walked into a kidnap, I couldn't walk out everything just turned upside down. It was just, I had no, I did not know what to do. So let's move on to prison because in prison, ironically, you know, it's a, (laughs) it's kind of a sad testament to a lot of things that prison became uh, the safest place for you in some awful ways. Um, Although not entirely by, you know, but, but that you started to really heal there. And, you know, for me, there seemed to be a real turning point in the book when you uh, got involved with helping a woman named Helen. So why don't you tell us about that? So this was some years later and I was living on a unit with this woman named Helen. And we used to, you know, on units, women are very maternal and nurturing. And so we cook and, you know, eat together or do things together, wash, you know, wash our clothes together, stuff like that. And I started doing that with her, just gravitated towards her. She was very quiet to herself, but I like she, other people don't gravitate to who I gravitate to. That's just who I am. <laughs> I am. So one day I didn't see her, like, where is Helen? And so I went to the office and I was like, cause I didn't, her door seemed to be closed. So I didn't look into her the little tiny window in her door and so I went to the um the officer and the officer said he didn't know where she was he thinks she's in her room I was like but it's so late in the day like she's usually out it just you know behavior wasn't right so I was walking to her door and an older woman on the unit said don't go in there I already knew she had the virus and by the virus you mean early days of the AIDS crisis I was like what why wouldn't I go to her, you know, check on her at that door? I went, she was in there, but she was in there. She looked like she was dying. And I just freaked out. I was like, wait a minute, you know, cause I got to care for her like a sister. And when I went in, I went in, I felt her, she felt very, very hot. 
she was like, she looked, her mouth was very dry. She just, her skin was ashy. She just not, didn't look right. And I got scared. Like, oh my God, is she dying? I can't have another person die. I mean, not Helen. Like, you know, I, it just couldn't happen again. So I got the rag. I, I put it on her head. I was trying to put water on her mouth to like, just give her something. So, you know, she wouldn't be so dry. And then I was screaming for the officer and getting, and people were yelling at me. Oh, you need to get out. She's sick. She's, you're going to die. You know, all the, the stigma that happened then. And I didn't care. The officer wasn't moving fast enough for me. I picked her up. <laughs> I picked her up and I took her out and I was taking her to the hospital, which just happened to not be far. But I just could not see another person dying. And I didn't like how people were treating because we were, you know, people were afraid. Stigma. You know, you thought that just breathing the same air as a person that had the virus, you would get sick. And that it didn't matter to me. You know, it just didn't matter to me. And I just needed her to get some help. And it just started from there. It was my, that moment where I was like, I cannot see another person be hurt and I don't do something if I'm able to do something about it. Yeah. And then, you know, unfortunately Helen died, but you said in the book, um, you know, when Helen died, I said farewell, not only to her, but also to who I was before I knew her. I no longer need to stand by to stay silent when something bad happens to me or another woman. From this point, I'm my own person, focusing wholly on my goodness and my growth. You got it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a it's clearly a, a poignant moment for you. And I did. I um I said goodbye to the little girl, that little girl who was silent. But I embraced the little girl who found her voice. And I started telling her I love her started holding her and just um, letting her know that she didn't have to be silent, that it's going to be okay. We're going to figure it out together. I always had to talk to the little girl in me because nobody else did. And then I just started just doing that more. And I just started just not so much changing because I don't believe we change. I believe we become who we truly are given the circumstances and opportunity. And as abnormal and as dismal and as crazy as a as prison is, because there's no such thing as a humane, healthy prison. There isn't. But it was the need in me, the want in me was so strong that I, I fed that. I fed that beast. What We Loved is a new podcast about queer history coming May 15th. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, your host. Growing up, I thought being gay was the worst thing I could ever be. The gay history I learned was tragic. Jerry had died of AIDS and it's like, what is happening? It was survival. That's why it's called survival sex. But as I interviewed queer elders, I realized there was another history that I had never been taught a history of courage and perseverance. I wanted to take control of my story and not be ashamed of it. And it was a history full of love. The joy we found in saying husband again and again and again was incredible. And while learning this new queer history from my elders, 
I realized they had so much wisdom to pass down. The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself. For My Heart Podcasts, I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and this is But We Loved. Listen to But We Loved May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So you and and some of these women go on to start the AIDS Counseling and Education Program, which was the the first of its kind, right? Yeah. In anywhere yeah. in the world in a prison. Mm-hmm. And you begin so to as a response to HIV and AIDS, we figured it out and said, "We need to do something. We can't turn our backs to this." You began to take care of women in prison, and and your healing continues to grow. Yes, and um. I was adamant that we needed a hospice kind of unit because too many women were dying and they needed a place to convalesce or we needed that space. And finally, the warden, the superintendent, was able to make that happen. And it wasn't just me, it was the women, but I was really like adamant about that. Like We had this small little space that the women were in and it just wasn't right. We needed a unit like a hospice unit. And we were able to get that and we just build it out. I helped build it out from there and was taking care of the women from that moment on. I was always a part of the medical program and, and all these other programs. And one of the things I think what, what happened in my time and our, to people I write about our time there, we had, we were fortunate enough to have a warden, a superintendent, what we call here in New York, that understood you have to ask the woman what they need so they can tell you what they need. We can't tell you what they need. They can tell you. They know what they need. Give us, like she helped build our voices and allowed us um, to have some kind of autonomy over our surroundings. And that's how we were able to create the first HIV AIDS program in the prison. It's modeled all across the world. We brought college back. We created a children's program. That's the first of its kind in prison, um, a family violence program that uh, came out of the governor's office after there were a series of hearings that happened and say why most women do go for being battered and and abused and hurt. And some do kill their batterers. And it does happen because after a while, sometimes you just snap or whatever, you just are the opportunity. And it's not like, you know, these women are happy about what they did or like, you know what I mean? They've blacked out. They're, I mean, the trauma is amazing. Like for me, I can't even, some things as healed as I am is also still as broken as I am. That I can't even put certain times together. Like what time was this? What like year or what, you know, like it's kind of confusing, especially as a child, like the blackout things, like where I can't have 
pictures of things like, what was that? Like a remembrance of something? Because your mind goes into that place where it protects us. We were created with these mechanisms where our bodies would protect. That's why like horrible crimes and people have car crashes. After a while, the endorphins in your body are released so you don't feel the pain as much. You know, I mean, there's things that happen that we, it's just innate. And, and I try to get people to understand we're not the worst moment in our lives. We're not the, our mistakes. We're not our crimes. We're not those. We're human beings that have been through something. And even for people that do really do bad things, why do they do it? Most people just don't wake up and say, oh, I'm going to go out here and I'm going to murder or you know, I'm just going to whatever. People snap. We just had a shooting here. I mean, not here, but in the country yesterday. It was the yesterday before yesterday. Guy just shot up his coworkers. They're like, what happened? <laughs> right? Something off. And no, we're not going to catch everything. But there are signs of things. And people need to pay attention and or at least acknowledge it when they see it. Because it's there, it happens. Don't act like it doesn't exist. When we see something we, after 9-11, this country's like, if you see something, say something. If you're seeing a child getting hurt, say something. If you see anyone getting hurt, say something. You know what I mean? Like, we need to get back our humanity. And we would be able to do that in Bedford at that time. Yeah. Hurt people hurt people. It's the reality. And and so you you were part of what you guys did there was you worked on, I think, tell me if I get this right, that you worked on at least allowing women's backgrounds, what had happened to them, be part of what was admissible in court and considered in their sentencing. Yeah. So that was the bill you're talking about, the DBSJA. Mm-hmm. Yes, we got it into law. Congratulations. He wrote it. He signed it last, are we, last month. Right? Oh, wow. Yeah. Yep. So he signed it last month and we were celebrating, celebrating now a little bit. So yes, the Domestic Violence Survivors Justice Act. Well, it's not just women. It's also, we didn't leave men out because it happens to men too, men are abused, where they can at least, if they can show that they have significant amount of trauma and abuse in their lives that led them, you know, that led them to either participate in the crime or the crime happened because of such abuse, then they're able to get their sentences at uh, either an alternative program, depending on the severity or intervention, right? Mm-hmm. And definitely not as much time because people need help. <laughs> like abuse to that extent does have an effect on people and people react, people snap, people, we're human beings. And again, no one's saying that it's okay. No one's saying it's right. We absolutely know, at least those that I know that I did time with and continue to be friends with, we know and we're not okay with it. But that's why I do the work that I do, because I need the world to understand. We cannot keep doing this. And people don't, we shouldn't have people coming. I mean, even getting to a place where they just snap, they don't even know what they're doing. They just know they have to survive. Yeah. And I tell people, if you're hungry, if you are hungry, I mean, starving, your body's saying eat. And it doesn't care how you feed it. Right. You have to eat. And so when you see people stealing because they need to eat because they're hungry, if you're hungry, you're going to do the same thing. If you see something, you're going to take it. Whether you are supposed to take it, if it's allowed or is legal to take it or not, you don't care. You yeah. have to satisfy those things in us. We have no control over it. Yeah. We have to sleep. 
We have to eat. We have to drink. We have to do things that we have no control over. And so when your body's put under so much pressure, it's going to react to it. Tell me about Sister Mary. The mother of my heart. Oh my God, what can I not say about Sister? Her birthday is two days from now. Um, my mother, Sister Mary, uh, was and continues to be an amazing, amazing human being. I have never met anyone that exemplified unconditional love as she did. She was unconditional love. She is unconditional love. She taught me a lot. She fought for the women. She's the reason why we have this domestic violence conversation going on. She started it way back when. Um, she's always been fighting. She's always been fighting for people, especially women. She's like, when it's not right, she face anyone and just tell them. And you had to listen to her because she comes from a place. You came from a place that you felt this love. You felt this truth. You felt her. And you, you knew that she was in line. You knew what you were saying is true. And you just like, how could you tell this nun no? Right. So she helped me get out of prison. She helped me become the Donna that I am right now, the activist, the person that speaks out even more and just tells the story and tells the story of women and just tells about the conditions and stuff because it's important. And she really reinforced how important it is for us as people to stop hurting people. For us as people to love people, at least respect people. No matter your color, no matter religion, no matter your sex, sexual preference, it doesn't matter. That's who Sister Mary continues to be. Yeah, she sounds like a just a beautiful woman and obviously was a hugely influential figure to you. And a lot of others. <laughs> as you were leaving jail, which you eventually did, um, you say you shared a message with with the women, and I'll just I'll just read it here because I think it's it's beautiful. You say that um, I share with them the most important understanding I've developed during my time here that we can connect deeply with humanity if we look through the eyes of love and compassion. We have to treat each other with constant love, both here and out in the world. We understood it. We kind of knew. I think that the more um, I won't say the more. I just know that a lot of the women there understood that. They might not have known how to do it, you know, what it would look like, but knew that that was it. And we just wanted the world to know that. And so some of us are doing that. We're telling the world. I stand up and tell the world. <laughs> I get death threats because of it. <laughs> I get a lot of things because of it. I've got a, all these, though I've got a Wikipedia page that was created by somebody. I don't even know who, <laughs> I mean, all these things, but I continue to stand in my truth and stand in that truth that we have to come to this place where we love each other. We get our humanity back because if we don't, we're going to definitely feed that bad, like that bad wolf is getting bigger and bigger every, every second of every day. And we can't, we can't, we can't do that. We cannot do that. That's not who, that's not how we, we created and love. How could we not look at the beauty that's around us, this world? Like who could imagine doing this? I haven't got a clue how to do anything like this. I mean, this comes, but it's a, this is love. This is beauty all around us. If we just recognize it and really understand it. 
Well, I think that is a beautiful place to end it. I think so, too. <laughs> Thank you so much, Donna, for, for spending the time with us, sharing your story, for the work that you do in the world. And, and it's just so inspiring. And like I said, it's, it's a real honor to have you on. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And make sure to get a little piece of light. <laughs> That's right. We'll have links to your book in the show notes for sure, as well as your website. And on your website, you have a foundation that people can support. And we'll have, we'll have links to that for all our listeners. Thank you so much again. <laughs> Thank you, Donna. I really appreciate it. So you have a great one. You too. Okay. If what you just heard was helpful to you, please consider making a donation to the One You Feed podcast. Head over to oneufeed.net slash support. The One You Feed podcast would like to sincerely thank our sponsors for supporting the show. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see See what music does to people. It gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.